Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It is an honor and delight to be here with Professor Michal Bar Asher Siegel, who is a scholar of rabbinic Judaism at Ben Gurion, whose work focuses on aspects of Jewish Christian interactions in the ancient world and compares between early Christian and rabbinic sources. Her book, Early Christian Monastic Literature and the Babylonian Talmud, compared Christian monastic and rabbinic sources. And her newest book, published last year, Jewish Christian Dialogues on Scripture in Late Antiquity. Heretic Narratives of the Babylonian Talmud focuses on heretic stories in the Babylonian Talmud. She's a member of the Israel Young Academy of Sciences. We had the chance to overlap in uh, grad school a little bit, and it's a great honor to have this time to reconnect and talk a little bit today. Thank you. Thank you for making time. So just to jump right in, one of the things that you've argued throughout your most recent work is that the rabbis of the Talmud did not live in their own self-contained world but we're aware of their societies, such as Christian societies around them. And I wonder if you can share a little bit, perhaps an example or two, of how much they actually knew about Christianity. So the the, the simple answer is, is that we don't know. That's the truth. And the reason that we don't know is because scholarship is very much behind on answering that question. So we've really just begun in recent years to start asking that question seriously with uh, tools from modern um, scholarship. Uh, a lot has to do with also the, the the way the Christian scholarship also was a little bit behind on that area, geographical area in which the Babylonian Talmud was, was redacted. So Eastern Christianity was also not studied enough. So as we now move forward, we now are in a position that we've never been before, having all that information about Eastern Christianity and, and also being much more aware of the importance of asking that question, the exact question you just asked, how much did the rabbis know about their neighbors, about their Christian neighbors? We now know, for example, that in the area where the rabbis live in Babylonia, between the two rivers in Babylon, where the Babylonian Talmud is redacted, um, they, there was a huge... Christian population uh, right across the river in Seleucus-Tisiphon, there was a, the, the biggest, the, the, the central, the capital of the Christianity of the East that, in that period. Um, the, uh, the, the Christians are the biggest, the largest uh, religious minority in the Persian Empire in that time period. And the question, how much did the rabbis know about their neighbors and what they thought, what they believed, the stories they were telling, the people that were leading them, the practices that they were practicing, how much did the rabbis know and in what way did they interact with that community around them? By the way, just one of the communities around them, but a very important community. So we don't know how much they knew. That answer still waits a, a further investigation, but we do have preliminary findings and they are very interesting. Um, we start with three, three kinds of material that we find in the Babylonian tongue. One kind is very explicit references to Christianity, such as Jesus. 
We have a bunch of stories, by the way, only in the Babylonian Talmud, not in Palestinian sources, which is interesting, about Jesus. All kinds of stories, which kind of testify to the fact that Rabbah had a very extensive knowledge of what appears to be some kind of gospel uh, narratives, not in details, but the major issues in a lot of them from the, from the gospel stories, they knew, and they are retelling it in certain ways. Some of them polemics, some of them satirical, they make fun of certain aspects, and some of them are uh, less so, and uh, pose a question that, by the way, even when the rabbis make fun of Jesus, for example, they, so they know, that he, his mother uh, is supposedly uh, bore him without a father from the Holy Spirit. The rabbis know and they make fun of it. And they call him the son of the Roman soldier, Ben Pantera, which is obviously a reference to the fact that the rabbis don't buy that story. Uh, but even when they make fun of that uh, tradition about Jesus, it, testif it still testifies to the fact that they knew about that tradition. So... The rabbis, on the one hand, pre present the fact that they know that knowledge. On the other hand, they're uh, satirizing it. What I've discovered in my studies, I took this one step further, and I, another type of stories, which are not at all identified as Christians. There's not a word about Jesus. The word Christianity doesn't appear in it. But a lot of the stuff within the stories have to be related and have, have to have some kind of background in the Christian world around them. I'll give you one example. So there's a very famous story about Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, living in a cave. Uh, he's all alone there, studying Torah uh, with his son, uh, living off a Mayan fountain of water and having a tree, a day tree or, or a charuv tree that gives them uh, um, the nourishment that they need without clothes. And they stay there for 13 years and Elijah comes and they come, come out in the middle and come back. That story, actually, if you check it very, very carefully, uh, first compare it to the Palestinian version of that story, which lacks a lot of the details that's found in the Babylonian Talmud. But then if you take the list of stuff that's only found in the Bavli and compare that to the most famous, the, the, the rock star of the, of the Christian world of that time period are the holy men that, surprise, surprise, what are the stories about all those holy men, the Christian holy men? They go into caves on their own, go through a spiritual awakening in that cave, drink water from fountains, eat from, from, from day trees and carob tree. They eat, they, they don't have clothes to wear. They have very, you know, they, they use the same word that Rashbi uses, chaye olam, chaye and and really very, very similar narratives. So I, I suggested that I think the way the rabbis uh, dealt with the fact that the, the, the world around them was telling those stories about Christian holy men was to take literary elements of those stories and incorporate them into retelling of rabbinic stories. Now I have to stop here for a second and say, not for a second, I, I'm not claiming that Rabbi Shimon was a Christian holy man. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the retelling of the story in the Babylonian Talmud is in dialogue with contemporary uh, literature of the Christians, which makes a lot of sense. Think about how we talk today. When I teach my students, I use Harry Potter to explain certain aspects of the Talmud, and I use, um, I don't know, a modern folk tale to explain certain things. The, the same way, the rabbis are using contemporary stories of Christian communities to explain certain elements that they want to talk about, the, the, 
the, the, the, the tension between studying Torah all alone in a cave in, in, in separation from the rest of the world, as opposed to having the need to go out and incorporate that into the world. And that tension between asceticism and studying Torah is something that's also in the world of, of the monastic uh, Christians. So I think the rabbis found a way to use those literary uh, uh, and bring them into the Talmud and ask a question that's relevant to the rabbinic world. So that's a second type. A third type of, of Christian uh, sources is actually my new book that deals with minim stories. So minim is it's a whole genre of literature. Minim means heretics, literally. And the rabbis, we have a lot of stories that sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? A rabbi and a min go into the Beth Midrash and they ask a question. Uh, and that's, we have a lot of those stories, most of them found in the Babylonian Talmud. And the question is, what are those stories? On the one hand, they don't mention Christianity. So the word Christianity or Jesus is not mentioned. On the other hand, there is, uh, there's some kind of a mark because this guy that goes in and asks the question is named a heretic. So who are those heretics? Uh, I try to show that those heretics, the question that they're asking, which seems very ridiculous and easy to disprove at first glance. In fact, we actually have you know, scholars in the 50s and the 60s writing, oh, what a stupid heretics, what kind of stupid question that they're asking. And I actually, I, I took upon myself, I looked at those stories and I said, why would the Talmud preserve stories that present heretics as stupid people? So what, what's the point of preserving this, creating this, you know, a, a thousand five hundred years ago and preserving it all this time just to read a stupid story? I try to say maybe we're missing part of the puzzle, which makes it look stupid. And I try to show in at least a bunch of stories that if you were aware of the Christian background, that was happening around the time around certain verses, Christian interpretation of that, the dialogue between the rabbi and the heretics is very meaningful and is about certain aspects of theology, such as um, uh, the creation of the Holy Spirit. Does a verse in Amos that says the creation of Ruach, does that mean Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, or Ruach Wind? Now, that exact conversation was happening in the 4th and 5th century in the Christian community that talked about one of the Trinity, right? The Holy Spirit. They were asking about, was, she, was it created? Was it not created? Rabbis are aware of that, and they're presenting that argument in the mouth of a mean. And Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Udanasi, uh, is actually trying to deal with that element because that's a question that's relevant to us too. How do we read the verse in the mosque? But more than that, it shows that the rabbis, by the way, as opposed to New Testament tradition, this is a tradition that we can actually name when this date, when it was happening in the fourth or fifth century, the rabbis were actually dealing and knowing, uh, uh, know what are the Christians debating about Christian, you know, uh, biblical interpretation and they're dealing with it and they're arguing with it, but they're, they know very well about the Christian argument, present it and answer it within the Babylonian Talmud which shows awareness of what's happening in the Christian world. So I wonder, in category one, when you talk about explicit critiques, um, would you include there or would this be a subtle, a, 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 a separate category of subtle polemics? Like for example, when I think of a Gemara in, um, in Chagiga, where they ask the question, can a virgin get pregnant? Right, and the answer is yes. And actually, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein ends up using this for infertility treatments, IVF treatments. But the question itself, I wonder, this category of sort of subtle polemics of, of where they're not naming Jesus, but they're kind of critiquing in a backhand way, is that quite pervasive? Also, that's that's an awesome question. And the truth is, we have a lot of those. 
we have uh, a mean story that talks about uh, uh, rejoice, the, 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 the barren one would ha- did not have children. Again, the word uh, Mary, the word Jesus is not mentioned, just like what you mentioned in Chagiga, but there's a whole genre of literature where we have to ask ourselves, who's reading those stories? Who is it meant for? Did the audience understand this? Is this a, a, a shul sermon on Shabbat afternoon when everyone in the crowd understands the joke? Or is it meant for a group of people who know this, but not, the others don't? We actually don't have the answer to that because we don't know. But at some point, this knowledge was lost because through the centuries, the Rishonim and the Achronim don't know that and don't, they don't recognize. What you just said about Chagiga, by the way, it's actually not found very often when you read Rishonim and Achronim. They miss it altogether. But obviously, when someone created that tradition, someone listened to that, someone understood, uh, uh, that gives us so much information about how much they knew and how the audience understood. And we're actually very lucky to live in this time period. I actually feel that very strongly that we now have the tool to rediscover what was the meaning of those traditions when they were created. The tradition, the rabbinic tradition were not created in a vacuum. And I think that's the, the most important uh, sentence that I wanted to say. They're not created in a vacuum. They were created in a world where this meant something than a virgin getting pregnant meant something in that world. It meant something in the Christian community around them. It meant something to them and something that bothered them. It's something that they had to discuss. And, and we're missing it. I always say to my students, you know how they, there's those um, p- paintings that you look at, but if you look very, very, for a long time, something pops out, you know, those like three-dimensional. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. And I think the Talmud is kind of like that, that if we just read it flatly, two-dimensionally, we kind of missed something about the way it was created, what it was meant, the satire, the, and the, all the depth of it, because there's three dimensions, if not, if not four or five, right? There's like a three dimension that we now are in a position to finally be able to basically better understand what it meant when this was created for the people creating it and the people who were listening at that time period. Yeah. So, you know, we often talk about um, the other two monotheistic faiths growing out of Judaism. But the truth is Judaism as we know it today is really born at the same time as Christianity. And, um, and so I wonder, you know, you talked about kind of responses, but I guess my next question is you showed how the, there were specific parallels between early Christian monastic sources and the Talmud and sort of parallel developments. And I wonder if you can share a few examples of, uh, of what those parallels look like. So as I said, a, we have the monastic literature, right? The 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 the, the monks and Rashbi in the cave. Yes. Um, what's interesting to me is also it's not just the literary concept. Sometimes it's also theological concept, right? So for example, we just you know after Yemim Noraim, it's a good time to talk about that example. We actually find, for example, in uh, um, in one source, um, you know the story about Rabbi Elazar ben Dordaya in Avodah It says about Rabbi Elazar ben Dordaya, he went to visit a prostitute. And then when uh, in the middle of it, uh, she says to him, oh, you can never come back. You can never, you can never return. And then he, he, it's a shock to him and he goes and he sits, he sits in the mountain and he tries to repent, asks for the mountain to repent, they ask the heaven to repent. And finally he says, it's, it's up to me. And he basically uh, uh, lowers his head and cries and he dies. And a heavenly voice comes up and says, he's welcome to the, to the next world. We actually have the exact parallel stories about a repentant uh, uh, a prostitute. And actually that story appears two times in monastic literature in which the, that prostitute repents 
And how does she repent? She cries, she dies, and then the heavenly voice comes and says, uh, she's welcome to the next world. In both stories, in the rabbinic story and in the monastic story, there's a sentence added from heaven that says, uh, in, in, in the Bible, it's, it's by Rabbi, it says, one hour of repentance has given them more than the many hours of others in repentance. And that same sentence is given in both the monastic story and the rabbinic stories. What does that tell us? It tells us that they were dealing with question of prostitution and, 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 and sexual acts, but also it tells us that they were conceiving about an option of an easy cast lane into repentance, right? Is there, is there an easy way out? Is death part of that easy way out? By the way, the Talmud is very baffled by that story. The, the Talmud says, what is that? We don't know about death being a way out of repentance. By the way, we do know in Masechet Yoma, there is a yes, sentence about exactly. that. But so, in most... Yom HaKippurin or Mita. Yeah. Or Mita. But by the way, the Talmud in Avodah Zarah doesn't mention that and doesn't connect that. And it asks, we don't die for our sin. It's not an easy pass way. And especially not for Susan. That wouldn't be the one of the things that we would say that this merits death and death repents. But we see here a, 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 a discussion that parallels theology in Christian monastic literature in really the same way. There's no mention of Christianity in the Babylonian Talmud story, but the stories are exactly parallel, meaning that both communities at the same time are discussing questions about repentance and questions about long, you know, elongated period and with a lot of work of repentance versus the option of doing it very fast. And is it fair? Does it work? Should it work? These are questions that the Talmud is asking and using literary uh, formats that are prevalent for that time period. And we miss that when we just read Elizabeth's story without knowing that these exact debates are happening at the same time in parallel communities. Mm -hmm. So to ask a very specific question, how do, you, how, how do you understand that the Jewish notion of messianism was influenced by Christian, Christian, uh, Christianity's notions of messianism, either as to who the Mashiach is herself or as to what the Yameha Mashiach, the, the messianic era looks like. How much are they try absorbing their Christian notion versus distancing from it? So now you're asking a really big question. <laughs> and I think the question has to go back to where messianism really has its truth in both Christianity and, and Judaism. And this is where actually I rejoin what you previously said. While we, 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 we you know, the pre previous metaphor was of a mother and a son, right? A mother, which is biblical Judaism and Christianity coming out of that versus the model of sister religion, which as you describe, and I agree completely, which is rabbinic Judaism and Christianity developing side by side in those Christian years of the first decades uh, uh, first few centuries after uh, uh, the, the, the death of Jesus and the Jesus movement, Messianism comes into the picture way earlier, second temple period. That's where Messianism is huge. And this is where the beginning of rabbinic Judaism and the beginning of the Jesus movement starts. They both come out of that crazy Messianism period where everyone was looking for messiahs everywhere. Even the Talmud preserve a tradition that we had many messiahs come in and they all failed or whatever. But everyone was looking for messiahs and both the, the Jesus follower movement, John the Baptist and others, were all messianic figures that they were, you know, coming out of that very messianic period and rabbinic Judaism among them. Because of historical circumstances and because of Christianity winning the day in the fourth century in Constantine when the Roman Empire, uh, you know, uh, converts to Christianity, 
Judaism political situation does not allow for a Messiah to actually take form in the same way that Christianity basically takes form later on. Later on when, you know, and Messianism basically never leaves in all different kinds of figures. And as you say, in Christianity, it comes from a part, very central part of theology. And Judaism, when it, we have the Messiah figures built into it from second temple period and even the end of biblical time. And we have that ingrained and we have to think about what it means without the political ramification because we don't have the tools for that and until, you know, modern times. Uh, uh, so th this all be becomes part of a theology that is being built alongside Christianity that had that also built in in theology, but also politically. So this is a very complicated question, but I think this is a good, good issue to ask the question of the sister religion developing side by side. Amazing. Okay. So I think for, hope, for what I think is our last question, I'm going to fast forward 2000 years. Uh, today, at least here in America, which you're quite familiar with, we're living in a society where we have to balance our Judaism with the surrounding non-Jewish society, of course, often leading to times where we need to separate what is Jewish from what is not exactly Jewish, even though that's not so easy to do. How can studying some of these rabbinic approaches to heresy and the amount they knew about the world around them influence the way we define Jewish and not Jewish today, how we define sort of boundaries of kosher and treif, if you will, um, and how we understand our relationship to the world around us? It's a wonderful question because of your starting, uh, your starting sentence. You said we fast forward 2000 years and now we live in a society where we have to ask that question. Well, we never lived in a society where we didn't have to ask that question. Right, this right. question always happened. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do in my research. I try to show that the Talmud was actually created by that question. What I mean by that is that the, the rabbis lived in the world where they had Christ Christians around them. And they, they saw practices. You walk in Tzipori and you see a, a church and you see a synagogue and you see a Roman temple right side by side. They lived in the world that they always had to ask that question. Who am I? Who am I living in this world where everything this is happening around me? And I always say it's kind of like, uh, you know, when you make a new dish uh, and when you create a recipe. Salt, everyone has salt. Pepper, everyone has pepper and, and everyone has sugar and I'm not a good cook. So that's, I can't use that metaphor very extensively, but I'll try. You know, you make a recipe and you make you, the, the, the components often are very similar, but the dish at the end is very unique because you've, you've created it from many different components. This is the way I look at that. So the Talmud might have taken theological concept, might have taken biblical interpretation, might have taken literary formats from the world around them, from Greco-Roman uh, rhetoric, from Christian beliefs around them, from the Zoroastrian stuff. But the final dish at the end, the Babylonian Talmud, is not like none other. What, what's the end result when the rabbis are dealing with it, what they do with it, what, how do they react to it? The final composition is what it is. Now, what we do when we sift out the different components, the salt, the pepper, when we do those things, we actually make the dish much more multi-layered. We understand where it comes from, we understand what's it, but we also understand better the final result. And this, this is what I would say about Judaism and Christianity even today, just as it was all through history. We make our own blend 
And by the way, when I say our own blend, our blend is nothing, you know, one house is not like the other. What is being Jewish, you know, as a, is one synagogue any like the another, even in the same stream of Judaism, right? We have so many, and that's the beauty of it. And there's something to be said about different dishes made it from different contexts, but maybe more dishes have are more similar taste than others. And so this is how we would look at it. We have to start looking at it as a multi-layered dish. I don't know, religion as, as food. That's a good Okay, conclusion. so I lied. One last question, because I can't, I can't not do it. Go for it. What was the uh, intermarriage? What was the phenomenon of Jews marrying Christians in antiquity? Wow, you're asking me. Your questions are very tough. <laughs> intermarriage, that's a good question. We don't know. That's, that's, that's the honest truth. We don't know numbers. We don't know how many people lived in the world. Let's start with that. We don't know the marriage age. We don't know. So these are very, very difficult questions. Now, some scholars have tried to sift through the sources and try to give an answer. It looks like, for example, that marriage age was older than we thought. You would think that they all married at age 12. Not so much. It looks like they married when they were 30, for example. That's one scholar's opinion. A shidduch crisis. It was a shidduch crisis. (laughs) No, actually, a financial one. They needed to build their house. They needed money. All the same. But... Uh, how much uh, how much transference was between religion? I think that's your main question. How, mu- how much did people move from one religion to another? First, we have to say this myth that Judaism did not move conversion, that's not true. It, it comes from the fact that later on, Jews were not per- permitted to do it. So we projected back and said, oh, we never wanted to, which doesn't, the sources don't agree with that. When the early year, the early centuries CE, everyone tried to convert any, everyone to their own group of thoughts and ideas. The Jesus movement went all around trying to spread that word of Judaism the way they thought about it. Another group of Jews, the Pharisees or whatever, everyone was trying to convince everyone that they were right. How much movement was there between the group? We simply don't know. What we can say is that there was a, there was a very significant part that did switch in all directions. We know about converts from, to Judaism. For example, we know that in Rome, there was their, their um, um, uh, tombstones with names of converts. So we know that there was a big chunk of converts into Judaism. We know that there's a big chunk of uh, Jews into Christianity. How much, what percentage? No one knows. Amazing. Thank you so much, Professor. Friends, please be sure to check out Professor Michal Bar Asher Siegel's books um, that we mentioned earlier. And um, she's in the States from time to time, potentially available as a scholar in residence here in the community. Please uh, thank you for taking this time. You're welcome.